Well, good morning. Um, it's, it's an opportunity that I, I cherish when I get the chance to, to open God's Word with you. And so I'm looking forward to seeing what God uh, has for us this morning, sharing with you what I learned uh, this last couple of weeks. Sometimes things don't go the way that you hoped they would. And sometimes life sends disappointment. And sometimes it leaves a mess. And so Mother's Day is kind of a hard day to preach because we've got all different kinds of people in the room. We've got moms in the room. And, and you, you maybe have, you resonate with that like um, things didn't go the way that you wanted them to. And maybe you have a variety of, of struggles. Maybe um, your kid's behavior or their performance or you feel the weight of your kid's decisions. Or, or maybe... Uh, Maybe some of you just struggle with the mom guilt, you know, of, of wanting to um, be super mom, but also having other responsibilities too, and so you wrestle with that difficulty, worrying about the future. So we've got moms in here with all these different concerns, and, and, and we've got moms with adult kids in here. And, and uh, maybe you look back and you think, well, what if I had done things differently? Or I wish I had done things differently. We have prospective mothers in the room, and there's joy, but there's also anxiety and fear. Uh, we have ladies in the room who wish they could be moms, but it just hasn't happened yet. And, and we've got females in the room who are not really looking to be a mom anytime soon. Uh, we, we've got children in the room, we've, and we, we've got men in the room. And so Mother's Day is this, this weird thing where, where you want to you wanna honor mom, and you want to preach about Mother's Day, but at the same time, um, there, there's so many other people in the room, and, and for some of you, Mother's Day is just a hard, hard time. Um, and you, maybe even some of you debated even coming to church on Mother's Day. But no matter your demographic, young, old, mom, not mom, uh, dad, young adult, student, kid, you've all experienced disappointment. You've always, you, you've all experienced a situation where things didn't quite go the way that you had hoped. Your expectations weren't met. So a few weeks ago, um, I, I came home from work with, with plans for the evening. I, I had an idea of what I wanted to do when I got home from work. I wanted to eat dinner. I wanted to play with the kids a little bit, put, put them to bed, read a little, watch some NBA playoffs. Maybe watch some Netflix and go to bed. That was my plan for the evening. But I walked in the door and uh, Helen, my wife, said to me, she said, the van door won't open. The sliding door on the passenger side won't, won't open. The handle will pull, but, but it does nothing. So I went out to investigate and it was as she said. Uh, the door would not open. Uh, so uh, I'm not a Mr. Fix-It guy. I, whenever I try to fix things, I just make it worse and get really frustrated doing it. So, uh, but, th- but there are some of you in the congregation, there are some of you that would encourage me, you'd say, no, you can do it. You can do it. After all, how hard could it be? I don't know why you're laughing already. I'm not to that part yet. <laughs> so, I, after all, how hard could it be? So I go outside to examine and it seemed like it was just kind of stuck on something. So I opened the door and I'm thinking, what could it be stuck? There's this little switch. And I thought, well, that switch moves really easy. I wonder if somebody just bumped it. So I, um, I flipped the switch and closed the door. Now, some of you just caught what I just did. 
That was a child lock. Now, the child lock, the, it's an important safety feature of your vehicle that you, you have it there so that um, when you're going down the interstate, your children can't open the door and be dangerous. So that's a great thing. It locks the door from the inside. It's important to have unless you can't open the door from the outside either. So now I've got a door that won't open. After all, how hard could it be? All right? So then I get on YouTube... And I try to figure out, okay, I've got to pull the door panel off. So I figure out how to pull the door panel off, and I get it pulled out, and I jam a screwdriver in this little mechanism that forces the door open, and now I've got that problem I created. I've got it fixed. You know, after all, how hard could it be? And the door handle still doesn't work. So then back to YouTube I go to figure out what it is I'm supposed to do here. And so I start taking things apart and I pull this rubber gasket out and I unscrew this and I unscrew that. And uh, I pull on the door handle and I, I finally get it out. But the end result was that my plastic door handle snapped into two pieces. So now I've got a broken door handle and there are screws and rubber gaskets and screwdrivers um, the, the inner workings of my door are just hanging out of my door. And there, there's a, one of our neighbors, um, it, there's a, a child that we, you know, that we'll go to the park or something, give them a ride. And this little child uh, didn't want to sit in that chair anymore because the door was scary. <laughs> so I've got this scary door and, and screws and rubber gaskets and screwdrivers and a broken door handle and blood and sweat and tears all over the place. I... I've just created a bigger mess. That was not my expectation of the way the evening was going to go. That's not what I wanted to happen. But that's what took place. After all, how hard could it be? Um, my day, my, my evening ended in, in a mess. And I, I wonder how many of you, you've experienced that, not, not wrestling with fixing things, but just like in life. If things didn't go the way that you hoped they would, things didn't meet your expectation, and now you've got a mess on your hands. And what are you supposed to do when things don't go the way that you had hoped? Now, in our culture, we say a lot of things that, that we don't mean. So at best, they're meaningless. At worst, they're just straight-up lies. How are you? Fine. How many of you have ever said that, fine, when things aren't fine? Now, you're not going to tell some random person um, all of your problems. Some of you will tell uh, <laughs> some random person all of your problems. Most people don't want to do that, so you say fine. But how many times have you just said fine when, when things aren't fine? There are some of you, I'm thinking of one individual I spoke to this morning, that I say, how are you? And they say, I'm just living the dream. And I'll tell you that, people who say, I'm just living the dream, I believe them. Because if you have the confidence to say that kind of thing... You probably are just living the dream. But, but we say things we don't mean all the time. Um, you run into somebody that you haven't talked to in a while and you real quick catch up and then you say, you know what, let's get coffee sometime. You don't mean that. We just caught up. What, what else is there to say? We just caught up. How, how, many, how many times have you said that and not actually followed through with that? Or you say, um, uh, you say this statement to somebody, no offense, but what you're about to do is say something highly offensive. Um, or how many of you have told a salesman, I'm letting salesmen know my trick, I don't think we can do that at this time. And what you really mean is, I'm never ever going to do the thing you're asking me to do. You've said that before. We say things we don't mean all the time. 
Like the song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. Uh, you know, here's a little song I wrote. I'm going to sing it note for note. Don't Worry, Be Happy. That song, sometimes I don't want to be happy. Like that, we, we, say, we say that to people, but we don't mean it. When I was a, a kid, my dad used to get a load of dirt, like a truckload of dirt, and he would dump it in this vacant lot across the street. And then it was our job as kids to uh, shovel by shovel, wheelbarrow by wheelbarrow, uh, to move it across the street and spread it on the lawn. And, you know, every so often, you know, every couple of summers, it would be our job to do that. And my mom one time went out there, I was a kid, in the blazing heat, with a shovel filling a wheelbarrow, and I had the stereo out there blaring the song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. Like I was trying to get my mind right. Uh, but it didn't work, because I didn't want to be happy. I didn't want to do the job that I was doing. Don't worry, be happy. And the more spiritual version of don't worry, be happy is everything happens for a reason. Now that, now that's true though. Like we believe that. That is true. Everything happens for a reason. God is in charge, and on a cosmic level, that's true. Everything happens for a reason, but when you're walking through difficulty and struggle and something happens, you're not trying to hear everything happens for a reason. And do we really believe that? Do we really know that to be true? The more Christian version of that statement, uh, you might hear in church sometime, the pastor gets up and he says, God is good, and the congregation responds all the time. And then the pastor says, all the time. And, the, and then the congregation says, God is good. And, and you probably have participated in something like that before. But my question is, do you really mean that? Is that really true? Like, if we're going to be honest with one another, we, we have to ask that question, like, all the time? Or is that more like a don't worry, be happy kind of thing? Well, when I look at the Bible, I come to discover that, yes, that is true. Psalm 119, verse 68 says this, speaking to God, it says, you are good and you do good. God, God is good and God does good. That, that's an important set of truths for us to cling to this morning. It's foundational to what we believe to be true about God, about life, about faith, that God is good and He does good. And that, that's foundational to our church and everything that we do here. God is good and He does good, but but we wrestle, right? Like we know that in our brains and we read it in the Bible, but we wrestle. And, you know, Martin Luther, the great reformer, he, he was an interesting guy. He, he struggled with fear and anxiety. He struggled with depression. And he had physical ailments that, that he really wrestled with. And he had theological questions. He would read something in the Bible and it was like, I understand what it says, but then I look at the circumstances of my life and I'm not so sure. And one question that he wrestled with is, is God good and is He good to me? And I wonder if we were just completely honest with each other this morning, if anybody in the room is wrestling with that kind of question. Is God really good and could it be true that He's good to me? See, things don't always turn out the way that you expect or the way that you hoped. And life lets you down and people let you down. Is God really good in those moments? This morning I'm going to argue that the answer to that question is yes. We see in, in Psalm 119, we see that affliction is a black cloth against which the diamond of God's goodness brilliantly shines. We read Psalm 119.68, God is good and God does good. Is that don't worry, be happy? No, the context of 
Psalm 119 isn't sunshine and lollipops. It's affliction. That's, that's the backdrop for Psalm 119, this verse. So in verse 67 it says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. In verse 71 it says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And verse 75 says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. See, affliction is the backdrop to the statement, God is good and God does good. God is good all the time. In every circumstance, even in affliction, God is good. And so uh, where I'd like to spend the rest of our time this morning is I want to look at an example, at an example of a woman um, and her story shows us that God is good all the time. And what we're going to look at is what does that mean for me? What does that mean when things don't go the way that I hoped they had gone? What does that mean for me when the unexpected happens? Or even the unimaginable happens. Now here, sitting together in this room, we've got all different kinds of experiences and hopes and regrets and worries and fears and dreams all over the room. But today we can learn that God is absolutely good all the time in failure and affliction when things seem their darkest. God is good. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn with me to the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth kind of sits in a, in a, in a transitional period in the nation of Israel's history. Um, you remember they were in Egypt and they escaped through the Red Sea. You, ha- you have the book of Exodus. They're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, headed for the promised land. And then they cross over the Jordan River, they head into the promised land, and they start to take over. They take the land. But there's no king in Israel, and this is the time period called the Judges, where there are leaders in Israel, but there's not necessarily a king yet. It's during this period of the Judges that the story of Ruth happens. There is no king in Israel. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And in the book of Ruth, we come across a woman named Naomi. Naomi is a Hebrew woman. She lives in Bethlehem in in Judah in Israel. And she lives there with her husband Elimelech. And she's got two older sons, two two adult sons. Well, there's famine in the land, and, and what you did in those days when there was famine is you just packed up and you went somewhere where there wasn't a famine. So the family packs up, they leave Bethlehem, and they go to the country of Moab. And they 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 have to kind of cross the river and go around the the bend of the lake, but they get to Moab. It's about a 50-mile mountainous terrain, difficult trek, but they go there. They're going to stay for several months to escape the famine. But the famine lasts longer than the family thought, and so what was just going to be a few months of a sojourn turned out to be several years. And during this time period, the unthinkable happens. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. And so Naomi has lost her home in Bethlehem, and now she's lost her husband. Well, she's still got her two adult sons, and in the midst of this tragedy, there is some joy. These two sons uh, meet Moabite women, and they get married. And so one, one of the sons' wives is named uh, Orpah, and the other one's name is Ruth. And that's who this story is primarily about, is the person of Ruth. 
So now Naomi's got her two sons. She's got their wives and they're living in the Moab. And the text tells us that they lived there for ten years. Ten years living in a foreign country. She's lost her husband. And then the unthinkable happens again. Naomi's two sons die. She has no home. She has no husband. And she has no sons. The troubles of Naomi are enormous. Famine in the land causes her to uproot and lose her home. She thought it would just be for a few months. Now it's been over a decade. Her husband dies. Her sons die. No mother should ever outlive their children. But that is what took place in the life of Naomi. Imagine the emotion. Imagine the grief. Imagine the sense of loss. How should Naomi interpret these things? And she hears that the famine is over in Bethlehem. And so she plans to return to her hometown. And she begins her journey back home. She tells her two daughters-in-law who are staying with her, she tells them, go home. Thanks for being kind to me. But go back to your families. Go find new husbands. And they all cry together like a Hallmark movie. But Naomi insists, you've got to go. And she says, go go home. I, I don't have any more sons. I'm too old to get married and produce new sons for you to marry. That doesn't make any sense. Go home. And then in Ruth chapter 1, verse 13, the second half of that verse, we see Naomi begin to interpret the events of her life. She says, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. There's a window into Naomi's mind. We're starting to interpret the way that she's seeing things happen. What she says there is, What has happened to you, my daughters, is... is, Not as bad as what happened to me. What's happened to me is worse. You lost your husband. Yes, and that's a terrible thing that you've lost your husband. But I lost my husband and my sons. I have nothing else to offer you. There's there's no way that uh, I can offer any sort of hope. You still have hope. Go home. get, Get married. But then you see her interpretation. She says, the hand of the Lord is against me. It's exceedingly bitter, she says. The hand of the Lord is against me. And so the story continues. Uh, Orpah agrees. It's a bad idea for me to stay with you. I'm going to go home. It says in verse 15 that she went back to her people and she went back to her gods. She she was worshiping the one true God, but then um, bad things happened in her life, so she went back to her old way of doing things. But then the text says that Ruth, while Orpah left, Ruth clung to Naomi. And if you've ever read the book of Ruth, I'm sure this statement stuck with you. Ruth says to Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your gods, my God. Where you die, I will die. She's saying, I'm committed to you. I'm committed to your family. I'm committed to your God. And so, Ruth and Naomi together go back to Bethlehem. Now, the story picks up in in Ruth chapter 1, verse 19. It says, So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they 
came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? So there's a buzz in town. It's not like a big celebration, like a parade. Naomi's back. It's more like a whisper. Did you hear what happened to Naomi? Is that really her? Who's that girl that's with her? Now there's this, there's this murmuring, this buzz in town. And then once again, you see Naomi interpret the events of her life in verse 20. Naomi said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? You see, she, she's using that word bitter again. Why? The, the, the Lord has, has dealt bitterly with me, she says. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. The, the name Naomi means uh, my sweetness, my joy, my pleasantness. Don't call me that anymore. Call me Mara. The word Mara means bitter. That's who I am now. I'm, I'm bitter. Why? And she tells us, because the hand of the Lord has come against me. He has testified against me. Literally, He has answered against me. Now, I don't know anybody in the room that would say those things out loud, but I bet some of us are either thinking them now or we've thought them before. Like, I'm not against God. I want to be on God's side, but, man, it sure feels like He's against me right now. You've been wounded from events in your life. It could be death, but it could be other things that feel like death. Divorce. Abuse, some other kind of trauma, loss, disappointment. Things didn't turn out the way that you had hoped they would. Your expectations weren't met and you, you resonate with Naomi. Let's just go ahead and call me bitter. See, when things don't go our way, we have the temptation to question the goodness of God. We, we want to come alongside Martin Luther or we want to say, is God really good though? And is He really good to me? Like he might be good to other people, but I'm not seeing him be good to me. And there was famine in the land of Judah. And there was famine in the land, in the life of Naomi. And some of you feel that. It feels empty. It feels hopeless. I want you to hear this morning this truth. Though it may feel that you're hopeless, though it may feel like you've lost everything, though it feels like you're living in the midst of a ten-year-long famine, there is hope on the horizon. See, in verse 22 of chapter 1, it says, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, some of you are wondering, how is the barley harvest hope? Well, there was a famine and now there's not. What that tells us in verse 22 is that the tragedy and the bitterness is not the end of the story. There's more story to come. There's still chapter 2, 3, and 4 to come. Naomi returned in bitterness, but the story's not over. It's time for the harvest. God has been working behind the scenes. And all the mountains that he's been moving and all the rearranging that he's busied himself with, now it's time for the harvest. It's now time to reap what God has been sowing. And so we fast forward through the story and Naomi and Ruth seem hopeless and they're all alone. Two women in this first century town all by themselves, destitute. 
But then Ruth meets a man. He's named Boaz. She meets him in the field of the barley harvest. And this man, because of the culture, he is eligible to marry Ruth and to save Ruth and Naomi. And Boaz is a good man. And he does this thing and he protects Ruth and Naomi and brings them into his household. And Ruth and Boaz get married and they have a child. And so if you flip over, flip over to Ruth chapter 4, now, now it's no longer Naomi interpreting these events. It's the, the, the neighborhood women are interpreting these events for Naomi. Look at what they say in verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, first of all, they said, we're not calling you Mara. We're not going to allow you to be bitter anymore. We're going to call you Naomi. They said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. May His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. To Naomi, they say, God has blessed you. Naomi was lost. There was famine in Bethlehem. There was famine in Naomi's life. The locusts had eaten all of her hopes and her dreams and her expectations. But then what did God do? God redeemed. God restored. He, he gave back what the locusts had eaten. The text tells us that, that Naomi was this child's nurse. And that word doesn't translate real well Uh, to what we're thinking. We think of hospitals and doctors when we think nurse. What that word really means in other contexts, it means means like foster parent. She was given primary care of this child. She was the child's guardian. Naomi viewed this child as her own and loved him as such. She saw this child as a direct gift and provision from the Lord. And notice that it says that the women say this child has been born to Naomi. Naomi didn't give give birth to this child. It really wasn't hers. And yet that's the way everybody viewed it. That God was being good to Naomi. The one who returned from Moab empty has been filled. And she was faced with the question, is God really good? Is He really good to me? And, And at the outset of this story, she might have answered the question, no, God is against me. And some of you, that's where you are. You, you say, God uh, is against me. I, I'm hopeless. But though it may not seem possible, I'm telling you this morning that it's the beginning of the barley harvest. God is always working. He's always moving. He's doing things in your life that you don't see. And, and He's bringing about things that are unimaginable and unthinkable in your life. There is Hope on the horizon, even though you don't see it. When Naomi lost everything, there was no way she could have imagined getting to be a grandmother. She had no other sons. But now Obed is his name, and he's bouncing on her knee. That's not even the half of what God was up to, because, you see, Obed grew up. And he became a man, and he got married, and he had a kid and named him Jesse. And then Jesse grew up, and he became a man, and he got married. He had eight sons, the youngest of which was named David. That's King, King David. 
the, the greatest, the greatest king ever for the nation of Israel and Judah. King David. The one who ruled, the one who reigned, the pace setter, a man after God's own heart. The example for us, the one, the one that we follow after, even his major failings, um, his repentance is something that we should see as an example. Naomi had no idea that the little boy bouncing on her knee was going to be the grandfather of a king. She probably never saw it. She didn't see the harvest of the seeds that God had planted. But even more than that, God was doing something cosmic. Because this King David, he had a son. And named him Solomon. And Solomon had a son. Who had a son. Who had a son. Who had a son. Who had a son. And now we've got the royal line of the kings of Judah. And this royal line of the kings of Judah is preserved even into exile. Those people are taken. They're taken from Judah all the way to Babylon. But this royal line uh, uh, from David is preserved. And then coming back from exile, all the way back to the land of Judah, this royal line is preserved. And then there's a Greek occupation, and this royal line is preserved. And there's a Roman occupation, and this royal line is preserved all the way until a young girl is going to give birth to a little boy. And she's already got a name picked out because the angel told told her what she should name him. She's going to name him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. This Jesus, he's the hero. He's the conqueror of death. He's the one who's going to return one day and put all his enemies under his feet. He's the one that's going to make everything that's sad come untrue. He's the one who declares in the book of Revelation, he says, Behold, I'm making all things new. He is the one who is the hope on the horizon. Our our situation may never get better. It may not be there, but we know that one day He's going to make all things right. And we know that He's going to make all things new. And He is the hope on the horizon. He is the one that we look to. He's the reason why we can't say that we're bitter. Jesus, the grandson of Obed, the little baby bouncing on Naomi's knee. Naomi had no idea what God was up to. She had no idea that in the midst of her, her tragedy and her disappointment and her failings and her doubting that God was up to something that would affect everything. God was pressing into His purposes and, and, and God was, was seeing His plans through and He brought in Naomi to be a part of the story. And some of you walk in and you, you resonate with Naomi. Why? Why call me anything but but bitter? Is God really good? Is He good to me? The answer is yes. Yes, Naomi lost basically everything. And no, those things weren't coming back. Her husband wasn't coming back. Her two sons weren't coming back. And she said, this is exceedingly bitter to me. But then we find out the end of the story is that God is the restorer of life. God is in the business of doing new things, not just rehashing the old broken things. He's in the business of doing new things, things you never dreamed of, things that you never even thought were possible. And notice that without Naomi's tragedy, she would have never been a part of this story. 
there was no famine, she doesn't go to Moab. She doesn't go to Moab, they don't meet Ruth. If her sons don't die, they don't return to, to Bethlehem with a single Ruth. They don't meet Boaz. There's no Obed. There's no Jesse. There's no David. There's no Davidic line. There's no Jesus. Naomi's affliction ended in great good for her, for her people, and for us sitting here in the room. Is God really good? Is He good to me? I don't know what loss you've experienced. Maybe loss like this. Maybe on a lesser uh, level. Disappointment, pain. And you want to ask, is, is God really good? Yes, He is the restorer of life. You have no idea what He's up to. You have no idea where His hand is moving. You have no idea the role that you can play in the kingdom of God. Who can you mentor? Who can you help? Did you know that God never wastes a hurt? And there's a difference between brokenness and wounding. You can minister out of brokenness. But when you're wounded, you have a tendency to just wound other people. So some of us need, need to give ourselves a chance to heal from our wounding so that we can move to a moment of ministry. But we all need to move to a place where we can say, Blessed be the Lord. He has redeemed what has been stolen from me. He is the restorer of life. He has given back to me what the locusts have eaten. And so when you're walking in affliction, when things didn't quite turn out the way that you hoped they would, when your expectations aren't met, Let's learn from the story of Naomi. God is faithful to keep His promise. He sees you. Some, some of you need to hear that this morning. God sees you. That thing that you walked in carrying this morning, that, that thing that you came lugging in this morning and you've got it and it's resting heavy on your heart, God sees that. The Psalms tell us how numerous are His thoughts towards you. He sees you. He knows you. He cares about you. And He is the restorer of life. So maybe even through tears, and maybe even with a shaking voice, you can say that God is good. And God does good. God is good. And He is good to me. And God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. And the way that we're going to respond this morning is we're going to respond with worship. We've got one song that we're going to sing. I want to invite you to stay here in this moment. We're going to sing one song of worship. We're also going to have our prayer team and elders down front. If you need prayer over something, some burden you've been carrying, you, need, you, you could say, even say, I've been walking in bitterness. I need help. I need faith to believe that God is good. Come forward for prayer. This is a great moment for that. But I'm going to pray for you, and the band is going to lead us. Let's pray together.